everybody. Welcome back to the Eat Scripture podcast. We're just sitting here um, talking about Ruth. We have been, we've kind of gone through the whole book in a on the surface level mm-hmm. and just talked about several things, some really cool things. Yep. Um, mostly in a historical critical sense. And now we want to go back and look at some ways that we could go a little bit deeper, a little bit um, beneath the surface, some things that you may not have thought about before. Yes. That I think will help you eventually in applying this to your life and right. uh, make a big difference for you. So um, one of the things that we talked about in our first introductory episode mm-hmm. was... Um, some different ways that we wanted to walk you through scripture. And so with Ruth, we picked this book. I couldn't have imagined that it would be this um, easy with this book because it's got all of it. Um, But one of the things we talked about was literary structure. And that may sound a little boring to you unless you're an Mm -hmm. English major. But I assure you, it is not boring. It's very exciting to see the way this ancient Hebrew literature is written in such, it's beautiful. Yes. Um, just gorgeous literature. Yes. Almost everything. I mean. Uh, yeah. Really seems like, um, <laughs> even in the ancient world, that the Hebrews were the ones who really perfected it. There were a lot of people that were using literary structure at the time. It wasn't that it wasn't used in other cultures, but what the Hebrews did to perfect it as we walk through the scriptures and really watch what they're doing with the literary structure truly seems to be on a different level. They have gone out of their way to do things and to go into tiny details and large macro pictures that are just beyond what we see in most other ancient literature. There's just nothing like it. Even today's literature, I would say most of it is not written anywhere close to this. And I know who cares. You would in think. some ways. Um, and yet, once you get into it, like Gina's already said, we think you will care. We think it will start making a difference to you to see just how much is there because it gives a foundation to what you believe about the unity of Scripture. About the inspiration way because who could write this? Yes. It's so beautiful. It just starts opening doors also. Once you start seeing it, you start seeing things in the passages that you have not noticed before. Yes. And it starts opening doors to understanding a lot of other things. So um, it's partly where we've started understanding typology. It's partly where we um, started seeing the meanings of names and Mm -hmm. numbers and all of those things start to come together was through our looking at literary structure. It really starts to point out all of those things right and so i think it's a pretty basic thing for us to learn yeah it, it seems basic on one hand because really this would have been standard for jews as they were growing up to understand that this is the way the text is written this is what i should be looking for the types of things that i should be looking for all of that would have been standard to them but we have gotten so used to reading all our stories and all of our things anything almost we read in uh, our modern West, we just do it in a very linear fashion. A leads to B, leads to C, leads to D, until I finally get to the end, wherever that may be, G, H, 
I, who knows, on down the line. But I finally reached that ending, and then there's a big giant crescendo, what we call a climax, nice conclusion. All of my loose ends are wrapped up, and that's and that's what I get out of the story. Well, it wasn't that they didn't know how to write that way. No, because surely we've seen when we Ruth, read Ruth, yeah. we can read it through that way, and we certainly come to an end. It's yeah. a nice tie-up. It's beautiful. Beautiful climax. All of those things are there. Yep. But at the same time, they could write in a way that also would point the very attentive reader toward the middle of what they were saying. Because in the middle, they would place this beautiful main point that would really help harmonize everything in a way that couldn't be gotten if you were just reading it as if it was only one linear feeling story. Yes. So by doing this, we're looking for those pieces that the original author, i.e. especially the Holy Spirit, was really pointing people to who wanted to stay in it, who wanted to understand it on better, more intimate levels, who wanted to really know the text and get a feel for the most important parts uh, where God wanted to direct us. And so uh, a lot of this information is going to be taken from David Dorsey's Literary Structure of the Old Testament. Uh, we'll you make sure this on the you website. You can see literary structures on your own, but I would recommend that you go yeah. look at a book like this that will, and this one's like primo, yeah. uh, but will give you some good structures to start with. Yes. And so you'll start to learn how to do it and yes. how to see these. and. Absolutely. You'll, you'll really start building on uh, an understanding and start being able to make some sense of things that you maybe hadn't before, just because you'll learn to watch for patterns in the text, watch for similar words, watch for similar phrases, be able to put things together that are not just now. It's not just a simple repeat to you. Now you're seeing that, oh, this could be part of a structure that the author is trying to point me to. So by getting into one of these books, and again, like Gina said, David, David Dorsey kind of has the pinnacle of uh, literary structure work in this book, the literary structure of the Old Testament. And so I would I would highly recommend uh, picking up this book and just letting it help inform you about how this works. And we're going to walk through Ruth and we'll show you a little bit about how it works and the kinds of things you're looking for uh, as you're going through. So Ruth is built on a seven part structure. And this structure is called the chiasm. All chiasms aren't seven parts. They could be as many parts as the author wanted. It would always be an odd number. It would, if it, I only say that because if it's an even number, it's called concentric. That does happen sometimes. But a chiasm is uh, most, by far the most used structure in the Old Testament. And it because has Because it has to have a middle that a doesn't middle have a matching that's piece. right. So that's why parallel. it's an uneven number. Exactly. So these six parts are on either end are going to mirror match each one another. Other. Yep. And then this middle part is going to be ta-da. Sit on its own. Yeah. Kind of sit there on its own without a match and force you to realize as the reader, oh, this is the truly important part. Sitting here by itself. But he gets you there by by showing you the matching pieces on either end. Yes. And so that's what we're watching for as we read through Ruth now. We're thinking about, is there, is this one of those places where I should be thinking about mirroring pieces on either side? 
as soon as we start thinking about that, we go to chapter one. Of course, that's where we're going to start. One, one through five. And we're looking at that part, which is very succinct, just a short part of the text. Five verses to start out this story. But in these five verses, we get quite a bit of information. Mm-hmm. We get... No, you want to go ahead with a couple of those things? What is it that we're seeing in those first five verses? Well, I mean, immediately in Ruth, we notice that there, this first five verses are an introduction that is very stark. I mean, it's naming all these people uh-huh. that are in the family, telling us why they left their homeland and mm-hmm. went to Moab and um, what happened. Mm-hmm. It's a total tragedy. Yep. But it's giving us a lot of information, background yep. story, in just five verses. And this tragedy <laughs> has everything to do with the ending of the line of Elimelech, doesn't it? Right. It's it's the saddest thing. She's left here with a whole family. Mm-hmm. And they, there's famine. They've had mm-hmm. to go to a foreign land. Yeah. <clears throat> and they get there. And... and and the the sons find wives. It uh, probably yeah. seemed like things were going fairly well. Yeah. And then the husband dies, and then both the sons die. Yeah. Not only leaving her a widow, but her sons. Are widows. now wid- uh, widow. Her sons' wives are widowers. And are widows. Kind of all three of them probably living together. Yep. And um, so everybody's in a terrible state by yes. the end of chapter one. Verse five, right. um, and 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 Elimelech's line is done. Done. There's like no chance. Right. It, it just seems like we are completely out of luck now. There's no way that Elimelech's line comes back from right. this. It's com- she's completely, like she says later, empty. Yeah. So then we go to the very end of this book. Yeah. And chapter four, verse thirteen through twenty-one. Twenty-one, which is also a short section Um, and we see that Naomi's family is being restored. Yes. She's getting a family again. Absolutely. Elimelech's line is going to continue. That's right. It's not dead. She thought it was dead. It's not dead. That's right. Um, Ruth is getting married. We thought there was no chance of a husband for her. Mm -hmm. She's getting married and um, her daughter, it says her daughter-in-law who loves her is worth more than seven sons. Yep. So she lost these two sons in the beginning, but now she has this daughter-in-law who loves her, who has produced now for her yep. a grandchild. And if you read that story, it really, Ruth is mentioned there in the end, Yep. but so much it's of all about, about Naomi. The restoration of Naomi, yeah. It's almost as if she's had a son. It even says that she became his nurse. Yeah. Which she can't possibly have been breastfeeding him. Right. But I think it uses that word on purpose because mm. we're supposed to see she has had her family restored. Yes. Um, and so it's not many words, but it tells us a whole story and it's pointing to a bright future, yes. whereas that first part of the book is yeah. pointing to a very uncertain and dire future. Yes. And so... So the elimina- elimination of a line in the first part and the death of sons 
and then Ruth being left a widow and no chance, it seems, of her being able to go on and have sons. And then at the end, we have the restoration of a line, uh, the birth of a son who is going to continue that line. And Ruth now has a husband and is going to actually, we see, become part of the royal line eventually right. that I leads mean, to David. I mean, if you're just the far, a reader who doesn't know much yeah, and you read this, you see it just sounds hopeless and empty. And chapter one, you get to the end of chapter four and she is full. Things have been restored. The line is going to continue. Yep. And not only that, but she's going to be the grandmother, great-grandmother of King David. That's right. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's an amazing turnaround. She's full here. Yeah. She's Beautiful. She's empty here in chapter one. So, so those two the, pieces. Those two kind of um, yeah, play off of each really other. Really match very well. Then I'm forced to go to the next two pieces. Um, in from in. either end. Yeah. yeah. In a little bit from either end. Well, the step in from the first part would be chapter 1, 6 through 19. 6 through 19a specifically uh, would be my step in from the early part of the book. And there I find out, I can read through that section, and then I'm going to step in from the end of the book, one piece, and I am get to chapter 4, 1 through 12, I'll read through that section. Now, on the surface, those aren't going to sound very much alike at all. But if I will sit with those for a while, it will be amazing what will come out of there. Turns out they're like the same story. In the first part, I have this situation where I've got Naomi and she is talking to her two daughters-in-law and she's telling them they need to return home if they're ever going to have a chance at finding a husband at all. They need to leave. They just need to go back to their home. They both want to come with them. They both immediately say, hey, I'm staying. I'm staying. Why don't you leave, she says, but they both say, no, I'm in. I'm with you. But then Naomi goes on and talks about just how much of an impossibility it is uh, to think about her, number one, having sons. Number two, even if she could, would they really wait for those sons to grow up and then marry them because they're obligated to to produce offspring, something like that. It just sounds so crazy, yes. And so by the time Naomi is done with that little talk, Orpah, one of the widows, is saying, you know what, you're right, this is a bad plan, I am going to go home. But Ruth, by the end of that, is still saying, not only am I connected to you, but there's nothing that can drag me away. I am in this to the end. Your God is my God. Your people are my people. Where you go, I'm going. End of story. And that's that's a beautiful little piece that we find there that has everything to do with Naomi's loyalty to, or Ruth's loyalty to Naomi. Now I go back to chapter four, verses one through 12, and I find a story about, I find a story that's about the redemption of Naomi and Naomi's land through Ruth and how all of this is going to work. Now, I have two men in this case who get to say whether or not they are in for this plan. 
Now, I know that Boaz already, he's already told me he's in. He's in, 100%, I believe, Boaz is in. I find out that there's another Redeemer who has a chance to also be in for this plan first. If he wants to be in it, he gets first choice. He can say he's in for it too. As I read through this section, that's exactly what I find. I get him told that he has a chance to redeem it. He's like, I'm in, I'll redeem it. Then, though, he gets told what it means for him if he's going to choose to redeem it. That it has also to do with marrying this Moabitess named Ruth and producing offspring that will eventually take over that land in the name of their father, Malon. At which point he decides, you know what? Sounds a little heavy for me. I'm out. Now, right there, we have our connecting point. I mean, there's our piece right there. It's a beautiful way of weaving these two different parts in such a way so that they can be seen to be absolute mirrors of one another. Boaz is, I mean, he didn't waste any time. He's like, okay, yep. I'm buying the land. Then I'm, I'm in. I'm yep. marrying her and we're moving on. Yep. And he's not giving up. He loves her. And the, um, there's blessings for Ruth on both yep. ends. Yeah, toward the end of both sides. Um, and and uh, that Ruth, it looked like in the first part in 1 6 through 19 a that there was no way she'd ever get married by the end of uh 4 1 through 12 she's definitely getting remarried and so all of, all of these things are playing off of each other on both sides uh and and it just winds up being this beautiful structure that draws these things all together so that you can see clearly oh that's exactly what the author's doing he's put these pieces in in opposition to one but another. if you had never seen the literary structure you might not have seen the similarity in those two stories. Yes. And seen how they go together. Right. So that's helpful. So if that's true, then I step one in from those pieces on either side. The first thing I come to on the front side is 119B, 119B through 22. That would short. be on the first side, just a short little piece. And it has everything to do with the fact that the time of year that Naomi and Ruth are returning to Bethlehem is during the barley harvest, I find out. Right after they get there, some ladies spot them and start questioning the identity of Naomi. Hey, is that you, Naomi? Now, Naomi's going to say, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara because she feels like God has made her empty. I left full, but now Yahweh has brought me back empty. That full empty thing again. Yep. And so she has come into Bethlehem in despair. Come into Bethlehem in despair. And then I go to what might be the mirroring piece on the other side, which would be one step back from where we were last time, which puts me in 3, 1 through 18, chapter 3. Chapter 3, which that's that's a longer piece for sure than the one we just read. But as we read through it, we find there are lots of similar pieces to everything we just saw in 119b through 22. Right. There's the, the, they're winnowing the barley yep, harvest here. Yeah, the mention here. of barley again. Uh, yep. So that's a clue for us, the yep. barley mention. Um, when Ruth comes to um, Boaz on the threshing floor and lays down and he wakes up, she says, or he asks who are you? Yeah. It's another questioning of identity there. Yes. Just like the women asking Naomi, 
are you Naomi? Right. Uh, and then Ruth had left her home in Bethlehem with Naomi empty. Yep. And before she leaves, Boaz is loading her up with these six measures of barley. Mm-hmm. She leaves full. Yes. And um, so she's, uh, and he makes sure, he even says, I'm not going to send you back empty-handed. Yes. Um, so that goes with that other piece because right. that's what Ruth had said. I left full, but God, Yahweh has brought me back empty. Right. So those words are even used in there. And then Ruth comes back into Bethlehem with good news and hope, whereas before they came into Bethlehem uh, in despair. Yes, yes. So kind of opposite stories, Yes. but using similar language and settings and um, enough to let us know they go together. Yes, and I would say that about literary structure, that that's the way that you so often see literary structure work. It either works with the two pieces being almost identical to one another or it could work where you're seeing a lot of opposite of each other and so in this case we're seeing that emptiness has turned to fullness uh and we're seeing where once there was despair now that it looks like there's hope um that and then it has pieces that are mirroring to the barley uh, you know of course it was barley harvest now it's barley winnowing those are mirroring pieces um for sure and sound very synonymous almost uh, in the way that we talk about them. So all of these are pieces though that let us know that oh these two pieces do go together. Yes. These are uh, important to be seen together. So those would be the two pieces. That's, so that's now we've walked one, two, three on the front side and walked back from the from the end of the book one, two, three on that side. So I've got three pieces on either side. That means this would be the middle piece, number four, so that I've got seven in the book as a whole. There are seven literary pieces mm-hmm. in the book as a whole that make up the whole. Mm-hmm. And so here now I'm left with chapter one, or I'm sorry, chapter two, verses one through oh, it's the whole 23. Chapter. So it's the whole chapter. Which is the chapter where Ruth and Boaz meet. Yes. Where he starts out, he's taking care of her needs. Yes. Make it looking after her. And then they meet and have a meal together. Yes. Bread and wine. Bread and wine of all things in <laughs> verse 14. And um, she has enough of that meal left over. She goes from empty to so full. She has leftovers to take home to Naomi. Yes. She winds up sharing with Naomi what she has gotten right. from this kinsman redeemer. And when she tells Naomi who he is, Naomi is thrilled because she knows that Boaz, she knows who he is and he's a relative yep. and he's one of their redeemers. Yes, he has potential And to so redeem. this is the chapter where everything turns. Yes. It's from despair, emptiness to fullness at the end. Yes. Um, and as we'll talk about later, this is a structure of the whole book, but within this literary structure, there are other smaller literary structures going on that, and that's complicated right now, but, um, just suffice it to say, this is just the first level. Right. And so there's so much more going on here, but this is beautiful. Mm -hmm. The way this is, uh, written and um, 
just shows us so much. What were you going to say? Something else about that? Yeah, I was just going to say that chapter two, verses eight through thirteen would technically kind of see these feel like the middle of the middle into eight eight through thirteen, and that's how Dorsey has outlined those two. When we get to two eight through thirteen, what we see is that's the actual meeting taking place, where the yes. where they actually come into contact with one another for the first time, and during that meeting, whenever Ruth is saying, "Why have you?" took such favor on me, Boaz responds to her by saying, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So this Gentile widow is being blessed incredibly by this kinsman redeemer who is saying that she too should be able to find rest under Yahweh's wings for all that she has done for the widow widow of Israel that she is connected to. And so this in itself should be enough to point us further into the meaning of this book. The center of the center. Once I get here and I watch a redeemer who's willing to take in a Gentile widow, a Gentile woman who will die unless somebody steps in and does something for her. And then that being a way to facilitate further blessing coming to an Israelite widow unless someone steps in for her. These are the kinds of pieces that now all of a sudden the literary structure is taking me somewhere else. Now the literary structure, now I've got that in mind. Now I go to my centerpiece and okay, say, why is this the center? And I find that this center is itself now going to launch me into a whole other line of thought. And that's why this literary structure I think is so important because we've already seen it's shown us some themes in here. Uh, It's pointed out words that are repeated. It's given us um, this middle that we can, that we're launched into some topology, Mm -hmm. uh, which we will talk about as we go Mm -hmm. forward on the next episode. But the literary structure helps us to rethink the book. Yes. Rethink the passage and to get deeper. Yes. And, it's what will launch you open windows into things that you didn't know were there already. Yes. And so that's why I think it's so important. It really does um, point us to what's important. Yeah. As we said. Yeah. Absolutely. It's all important, but right. it's because it's using these words and the way it's put together, it's showing us, Oh, this is what the book is really about. Yeah. And so um, we'll continue this talk from here. And go on to other, some of these other things that we've talked about and how this literary structure has opened that up for us. Oh, yes. Awesome. Sounds great. I'm looking forward to that. Um, Don't forget to look at our website, eatscripture.com, and you'll find other resources there. You'll get to read some articles there, different things. But we'd love to also hear back from you on our podcast. You are welcome to leave a message. We would love to hear any questions that you have about this or just comments that you have. We can also just insert them into the podcast itself and be able to hear from you. If you don't want your voice on there, we don't have to use it, but we would love to if it's okay with you. Yes. So So, uh, you're welcome to tell us 
us that as you're leaving your question or your comment if you want. But we would be happy to hear from you and please share the podcast. And uh, we look forward to talking to you more about Ruth next time. Probably got a couple more episodes to go through, I would say, before we're moving on. But great stuff. So thanks for tuning in. Y'all have a great week. God bless.